Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hello, this is Desi Jenikin. Hey, Desi. Hi. How was your dinner? Yum. It was good. We, we stuffed our faces. <laughs> So let's start out the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Deborah, Stephanie, Dan, Chelsea, Emma, Nikki, Christine, Nicole, Jessica, Amber, Trent, and that's it. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. Okay, Desi, buckle up, because this is a long one today. I also... (laughs) I don't even really know how to describe to you what this ep- episode is going to be about, but it is about a crime in which three different men are at the center of that took place in Los Angeles in the 1980s, and it involves a lot of double lives. Now, let's just talk about my main sources for this episode. I read a book called... Insured for Murder by Robin Yocum and Catherine Kandisky. And I also got a lot of really great information from a 1989 Vanity Fair article by Anne Louise Bardak called The Murder Hustle. I also got a lot of great info from her follow-up article that she did about this case called The Murder Hustle Part 2. Oh. So (laughs) it was two separate articles a few years apart. So. Uh, yeah, as well as, you know, old newspaper articles involving the case. There was a wealth of information. And you know, sometimes you just have to write a lot of it down. Yeah. Because there's a lot of interesting, juicy details in this case, Desi. Okay. Let's start at the top. In the early morning of April 16th, 1988, a Los Angeles neurosurgeon named Dr. Richard Boggs called the police to report that his patient, 46-year-old Melvin Eugene Hansen had died of a heart attack at his Glendale office. Dr. Boggs told police that he had been treating Melvin, who went by Gene, for years for his heart condition, and that he had tried to get a hold of 911 hours before that, but the line was busy. Is that a thing? Well, no, Desi. He told the police that Gene had called him at 3.30 a.m. complaining of chest pains. He said they met at the office at 5 a.m. and after administering an EKG test, Gene Hansen collapsed on the floor and died. Police called a coroner to the scene who ruled that the death of Hansen was due to natural causes and Richard Boggs signed the death, death certificate. Okay. Now, Gene Hansen was born to Catherine Lawley and Melvin Eugene Snowden in Florida in the early 1940s. He had a younger brother named Donald. His mother divorced their father when he was just two and his brother was six months old. Not only did she never receive child support, but they really never heard from this dad again. Catherine remarried to a truck driver named Cecil Hansen, who was a deacon at a Baptist church. After two years of college at Florida State and three years in the Army, Gene Hansen moved to Atlanta in 1968. 
Growing up in a strict Christian home, Gene was a self-hating, closeted gay man, and he had at one point attempted to cure himself with conversion therapy. Oh. I don't know if it was specifically conversion therapy or just regular therapy, but he... He was trying to not be gay. For a while, he was thinking that he could just cure himself of being gay. Right. It was in Atlanta where Gene became a buyer at a shoe store. The manager working there was an out gay man, and he became sort of an inspiration to Gene to accept his homosexuality, though he would never fully come out to everyone, especially his family. But he oh. was more comfortable about it within himself. Okay. Gene was a hard worker and began making a decent living. By 1979, he was a shoe buyer at Robinson's, which is, was a department store in Los Angeles. And in 1981, Gene Hansen met John Hawkins at a party. John, who was 20 years younger than Gene, was born in 1963 in St. Louis to John Hawkins Sr. and Jackie Sirion. John's mother, Jackie, was just 17 when she got pregnant with John. The marriage between John's parents lasted only a year. Jackie would go on to marry marry and divorce four times. Now, a quote from her in the book Insured for Murder, she told one of the authors, don't get married. They'll cheat on you every time. (laughs) Oh, Jackie. (laughs) I love Jackie, by the way. Jackie's a great character in this story. I know. I'm, I, she had me at like her name being Jackie and that she was married and divorced four times. That's like a Jackie move. It's such a Jackie move. When John was 10, him and his mom moved to Las Vegas, where Jackie worked as a pit boss at the casino of the Frontier Hotel. Oh. So not only has she been around the block, she's also a pit boss now. Nice. Which is a hard job yeah, to do. Hard. That's, yeah, not easy. John Hawkins was not only handsome, but he was confident and charismatic. And according to a childhood friend, he could, quote, do bullshit real good. His main focuses in life seemed to be money, women, and working out. He was a known womanizer and fitness junkie. His mother, Jackie, said, quote, by the time Johnny was 13, he was already tall and handsome, and he had those killer blue eyes. He just charmed people into buying whatever he was selling. Jackie's like, that's my type of guy. (laughs) (laughs) Just you wait, does (laughs) it? Just you wait. Now, John Hawkins was a mama's boy. And according to the Vanity Fair article, he told one of his girlfriends that his mom told him everything he knew about sex. Nice. (laughs) It it was Jackie who taught this boy everything he knew. You like that move? (laughs) My mom taught me. And according to John's mother herself, this is a direct quote from her, quote, he asked me questions about sex, like the different ways to have sex and which ways women liked it best. I just told him the only thing I could, which ways felt good to me. (laughs) Which are? (laughs) I wish she gave that information. I I loved it, doggy style. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to. Hear her specific. I'm dying to know exactly how that conversation went. Yeah, me too. I would love to hear a reenactment. I just always love when there's like... (laughs) I like that she's like an honest... She's like, look, he asked me a question. I told him the truth. And I, since I didn't know what other women liked, I just told him what I liked. (laughs) Now, Jackie has real, like... I know she's not from like Jersey, but she has real Joey Buttafuoco wife energy to me in that, you know, remember in... That episode we did on Amy Fisher, how you were like, not my Joey. <laughs> yeah. She's very not my John. Yeah. She, nothing. John can do no wrong in her eyes. 
I don't understand these women who get treated by shit, shit by uh, like shit from men their whole lives who would still <laughs> defend a man just because they're with them or they're it's their son. Right. It's like you know men can do this like right. more than anyone. Like she can't possibly believe that her son could be capable yes. of doing shitty things. Yeah. Now John's mother would send him two statues of naked women that he had displayed in his house. John said the figures reminded him of his mother. Oh my God. And he would later go on to tell a girlfriend that she reminded him of his mom. What every woman wants to hear. (laughs) Every woman that John like gets into a relationship with is like a big titted skinny blonde girl. Is that Jackie? Yeah, Uh I think so. Okay. And the stat, he had nude statues that his mom gave him for like Uh, decor. Nice. And he's like, these remind me of my mom. (laughs) So (laughs) what? When he was 17, John left home for LA, hoping to make it in show business. If that didn't work out, he figured he could hustle wealthy women for money. (laughs) (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) You got to have a backup plan, doesn't he? You know what? (laughs) This guy at least had a backup plan. A very good one. Because some people get here and they're like, oh, I don't have a plan B. I guess I'll be a realtor. (laughs) He had an equally glamorous backup plan. I agree. His childhood friend Tim speculated that he was inspired by American Gigolo. And this is really funny because Tim was quoted in the Vanity Fair article and he's like, I bet he was inspired by that movie because we had just watched it and the next thing I know. (laughs) (laughs) I like how simple-minded he is. Oh, He'd be Richard Gere. That's what he thought. He said, I, I'm just as good as Richard Gere. Yeah. Now. I like how these people put two and two together. <laughs> but John Hawkins wasn't particularly talented as an entertainer. He was hoping to amass wealth and success solely on his good looks. He thought, I could be a movie star. Yeah. If only I could act. <laughs> if only I could act. His plans of seducing women didn't exactly pan out, so he decided to seek out men, descending on West Hollywood's gay bars in search of sugar daddies. So he meets Gene Hansen. They become friends. They even live together in West Hollywood on Hayworth at one point. The press speculated as to whether or not the two ever had a sexual relationship, and Gene Hansen would later remark, no comment. Which we all know is a very loaded statement. Yes. John's mother would later say, John's definitely not queer. My son loves women. He had lots of girlfriends. (laughs) He loves pussy. If there's one thing I know about my son. (laughs) Imagine defending your child's sex life like ever. He sucked a lot of women. (laughs) My son. Now, was he bi or he was literally just able to do this for money? I think he was more... Gay for pay. Yeah. I think like he was probably a straight guy. I don't really know. I just but he think- never said he was. He's literally just gay for pay. Yeah, he always he always said that he was a straight guy, mm-hmm. but he had no problem with fucking men okay. to get something out of yeah. it. Regardless of John Hawkins' sexuality, he had become a fixture in the gay club scene in West Hollywood. Not only was he hot, but he had seemingly Seemingly endless supplies of prescription drugs to dole out to his party-going friends. Oh. Now, where was he getting all these prescription drugs? Well, from a doctor in Glendale named Dr. Richard Boggs. I was wondering if that came together. (laughs) (laughs) 
Dr. Boggs was known for playing fast and loose with prescriptions, and this was the 80s, so there was plenty of lewds to go around. Yeah. I mean, they had all the good shit back then. What, were any of the clubs he's going to still in existence, like Rage and Mickey's or something? No, he's going to the, the Spike okay. and the, uh, the Rose Tattoo. Or Ooh. I think Gene went to the Rose Tattoo. Okay. But yeah, he he's the, these are just clubs that aren't... They don't even exist. They don't even yeah. exist anymore. Dr. Boggs also provided Hawkins with steroids for his own personal use because he was this fitness junkie. He wanted to be yoked. Richard Boggs was born in South Dakota, but he grew up in Los Angeles. Him and his family moved to Glendale in 1939. Boggs had dreamed of becoming a doctor since, since he was a small child, and he excelled in medical school, graduating from the College of Medical Evangelists in San Bernardino. In 1961, Boggs married a woman named Lola, and they adopted two boys together. By the late 60s, Boggs was a successful neurosurgeon living in a giant Tudor-style home in La Cañada, Flint Ridge, and him and his wife had two more children. Dr. Boggs gained a reputation for being a real doctor house when it came to diagnostics. Oh. Just, I mean, he wasn't hot like Dr. House. Right. But he was like, I can fucking solve this. Okay, so was he like... A general practitioner or... He was a neurosurgeon. Oh, he was a neurosurgeon. But he was able to... He just was such a fantastic diagnostic. But then... And and how was he giving prescriptions? Did he... Just as a neurosurgeon? Yeah, you can write prescriptions for anything when you're a doctor. I know that, but I'm just curious how he would come in contact with... Well, Someone. Desi, we're going to get Okay, there. sorry. <laughs> we're still in 19... Oh, okay. The 1960s. Got it, got it. We're just doing his biography now. Now... One of his wealthy clients, Rita Pinos, said that, quote, he was the most brilliant neurologist around. He saved my life. The doctor had cured her of near paralysis after suffering a de- degenerative thoracic nerve. While everyone could agree that Boggs was ambitious, his colleagues disagreed over whether his ambition was out of care for his patients or out of lining his own pockets. The LA Times article that I read called Boggs's practice medical capitalism, and I would agree. He opposed universal health care, and he was a prominent supporter of Nixon's private insurance initiatives. Boggs was actually responsible for putting together one of Southern California's first HMOs called Satellite Health Systems. Nixon himself telephoned Boggs to congratulate him. Okay. But by 1976, the company failed to turn a profit, and Boggs, deeply in debt, declared bankruptcy. Not only that, but two years earlier, his medical license lapsed due to non-payment. He was just a mess at this point. Dr. Boggs was also being hit with several lawsuits in the 70s. One in particular was from a doctor, Catherine Ravel, who accused Boggs of stealing her practice. Boggs had offered her a spot to practice under satellite health systems. He promised her a salary and a company car, but the money that she was promised never came, and Dr. Boggs had taken her clients right from out under her. He even had the locks changed to her office. Ooh. But she ended up winning the $50,000 suit, $57,000 suit. In 1976, Richard Boggs and Lola Boggs got a divorce. That same year before the divorce, Boggs had moved a guy that he was fucking into the guest house at their mansion. He claimed to his wife that he was a tenant. Oh. So this is another closeted. 
So he is closeted? Yes. Okay. And he's getting a divorce from his wife, Lola, in 1976. Okay. Meanwhile, before the divorce is happening, he's moved this guy into into their guest house on their compound. Okay. They live in a huge fucking mansion. And he's like, oh, he's just renting the room. But that's like... He's my (laughs) Cato. Yeah. But he was fucking Cato. Okay. Lola among others who knew him, claimed that he had changed after the bankruptcy. She also said that he had come to terms with his homosexuality at this point. Boggs was sued again, this time by his ex-wife, when he failed to make child support payments. During a hearing over the child support payments, Lola Boggs testified that her ex-husband had threatened to kill her several times. Dr. Boggs purchased a condo in West Hollywood with a man named Jeff who worked in his Glendale office. The apartment was furnished with leather couches, marble, and a jacuzzi. Male visitors entered and exited at all hours. He also bought a home in Laguna Beach, which became another party destination. In the 1980s, Boggs was spending a lot of time trolling gay bars for sex in exchange for pills. He would even have young men come into his office during the day under the guise that they were patients, but they would just fuck in the exam room. (laughs) There would be like all these regular patients in the waiting room, and he'd be like, Jeffrey? (laughs) I mean, once he came out, he went for it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He's living the life right now. He would even bill the insurance company for these alleged patients that he was fucking. He'd be oh. like, hey, I treated this guy. If you know what I mean. <laughs> and then he would take the money oh. from fucking these guys wow. from the insurance company. Hey, it could be seen as a form of treatment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were treatments, Desi. Boggs had a boyfriend at this time. He was a 20-something-year-old Blonde Swedish guy named Hans. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and he worked in the office as a receptionist. They're just painting with a broad brush in this story. <laughs> My receptionist, Hans. <laughs> you can't. He has a lot of experience. <laughs> hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Richard Boggs continued to party and spend throughout the 80s and continued to accrue massive debt while simultaneously borrowing money from friends. He was constantly being sued also. Damn. Just for various things. When U.S. Marshals showed up to his office to repossess his Rolls Royce that like, he couldn't pay for, they couldn't get into his office because it was locked up by the IRS who had been trying to collect back taxes. Okay. So it was sort of like, oh, you're trying to get this guy, us too. Yeah. Well, we need to get in his office. But Boggs always had a friend who was willing to lend him money, and he ended up just opening a new office across the street. <laughs> Like, I don't know how many friends... I mean, it must have been all the pills, right? That's the only explanation. Yeah. It seems like it was so much easier to get away with things back then. I don't know how this guy was constantly buying property. Like, to, that's so ballsy, like, to have the IRS and other people confiscating things from your office and then, like, I'll just fucking buy a new one across the street. <laughs> <laughs> Not even move, ta- move towns. Yeah, fine. I don't care. I will literally go across the street. Yeah. You can't lock this one. <laughs> That's ballsy. In 1987, Richard Boggs' attorney, Ronald Malone, committed suicide by gunshot. One of his other attorneys had previously been concerned about the amount of sedatives that Boggs had been prescribing him. Boggs claimed that he was helping Ronald with his cocaine addiction. Okay. So I'm getting him off cocaine by loading him up with quaaludes. Is that a treatment? (laughs) It's not, Desi. And I have tried. Not with quaaludes, but with other stuff. Right. And though Boggs was known for being reckless, he was also known for his charm. The little old ladies who came into the office had no idea about their doctor's double life. He would tell these old ladies, patients of his, that all the young men who were coming in and out of his office were his sons. (laughs) Oh, what a good daddy. He could win over patients even after committing egregious acts, such as the time that he forgot about a patient for four days as he lay waiting in a hospital bed for him. 
Like he checked this guy into a hospital, oh then forgot God. about him for four Jeez. days. But the patient forgave Boggs when he finally came to check back up on him, just because he was so charming. Nice. By 1986, the West Hollywood condo was gone, as was the Laguna Beach house, and Richard Boggs was now being evicted from the Glendale condo that he was renting. The landlords, an elderly couple who owned the building, said that he was always late on rent and that the and that strange men were entering and exiting the property at all hours of the night and making a lot of noise. On top of it, Boggs had destroyed the place. When the landlords cleaned the place out, it was littered with hypodermic needles. Ooh. Sometime after Richard Boggs met John Hawkins, John left L.A. for New York in search of bigger and better scams. He got involved with a wealthy older woman who subsidized his lifestyle, and then he became a regular at Studio 54. Okay. The older woman was friends with Steve Rubell, and she introduced John to him. John became a bartender at the nightclub, and he was lusted after by all the club goers. The Vanity Fair article notes that one club goer referred to him as a dry hustler, meaning that he didn't fuck all of the wealthy and powerful men he flirted with, but he was still able to charm them out of money and opportunity. Steve Rubell himself wanted to fuck John Hawkins. They were alleged to have had a sexual relationship with each other. And on top of it all, everyone loved the supply of quaaludes that John was able to provide them, which all came from Richard Boggs back in L.A. He would go back to L.A. to get pills oh, and go to all his friends at Studio 54 and nice. be like, pills for everyone. Yeah. I mean, he was charging them for it. Right. So he was making a good amount of money yeah. on top of it, in addition to the money he was hustling for turning tricks with right. these wealthy men. John Hawkins was also alleged to have provided his new friends with cocaine that he had obtained from his father. So, like I said before, between bartending, dealing drugs, and hustling, he was making a lot of money and living the good life. Um, This is a great story that was talked about in the Vanity Fair article, was that even though John Hawkins was making a decent living, he still was addicted to scams. (laughs) Like, he couldn't pass up a good scam. Um, This is a quote from the article. He told friends that during one stay in Los Angeles, he arranged for a friend to run him over. After renting a car and signing up for maximum insurance, the friend drove to an appointed spot in West Hollywood. As Hawkins started to walk across the street, his friend rolled the car until it was touching Hawkins' body. Hawkins later described how he fell into the street pretending to be riding in pain until the police arrived. Hawkins said he had a doctor vouch for his physical distress and bragged that the insurance company paid out a quick $25,000 to settle the claim. The doctor, he said, was Richard Boggs. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I just love the idea of a slow-moving car in the middle of the street just barely tapping him and then him falling over. That's like a LeBron move. That's like a (laughs) clown. LeBron's like the worst flopper ever. (laughs) It was at Studio 54 where John met the love of his life, Missy Hughes. Missy was a model and an actress who had appeared on the soap Another World. Ooh. At this same time, John was working for an escort service for wealthy gay men, though he denied to a friend that he'd ever had sex with any of the men, which was probably a lie. I'm sure he did have sex with these men, but he claimed that he was more of like a host. For like, he would escort the men there and be like, these are your men for the evening. Yeah. He was like a liaison. I don't think so. 
I think he was doing both. Yeah. He could have been also a liaison in addition to fucking men. Yeah. But um, most, like I said, most suspected that he was just fucking whoever he could get money from. It didn't matter to him. Or maybe he was just letting them suck his dick and he had like some like ways to work around it or something. Like some rule? Like, well, it's not technically gay if I close my eyes. Yeah. Like, I'm, I betcha some guys do that, right? Sure. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. In 1984, John's time at Studio 54 was over, as was the club itself. So he and Gene Hawkins teamed up to form Hawkins Hanson Enterprises Incorporated, a company <laughs> that imported Italian shoes. Wait, so is he going back to L.A. now? No, they're... So they formed this part. Because Gene is in L.A., Gene's right? Gene's in L.A. They're moving back. They're about to move back, move to New York together. Oh. But Gene's going to come out to New York. Oh. So they're forming Hawkins Hanson Enterprises Incorporated, the company that imports Italian shoes. But all the shoes themselves were not Italian. They were just had gone to Italy and copied styles they had seen. I see. So and, they were like knockoffs. Yes, they were mm-hmm. knockoffs, but they were labeling them as Italian imported shoes. They were not <laughs> Italian. They were yeah. American made, just copied from right. Italian styles. The company was a failure and the men were out of money. At one point, Gene Hansen was stuck in Europe, unable to get a plane ticket back home. Because he had no money? Because they had no money left. Uh. To get money to bring his partner home, John brought a broken down Porsche and arranged to have it set on fire outside of a gay bar that he was drinking at. I mean, it seems quite obvious. (laughs) That's the way you get money. When he came out of the club, he screamed and called the police to report the fake crime. He scammed $9,000 of insurance money and was able to get Gene a plane ticket home. How do you have the balls to scam like this? I'm like so afraid of getting busted. Like I don't want to, I can't face the humiliation. Same. Of someone being like, you thought you were going to get away with that burnt Porsche. Are you fucking kidding me? Like I could never, but it's like you have to be that brazen, I think. This is like, these people are on a different level of thinking. Yeah, like I would be so scared. Yeah. I would be sure I would be busted. Like, and I would be so embarrassed too if I got busted. Yeah, that that was that's literally what stops me from being a criminal. <laughs> like, I would be so embarrassed that I thought I would get away with anything. <laughs> and you'd realize, yeah, in hindsight, I guess it was kind of stupid. Yeah, it's like you can't even. He had no qualms about it. None. Yeah, but that was not the last of their scams together. Oh no. John and Gene needed money to start their next business venture. Gene Hansen took out an insurance policy on his Manhattan condo, which included all the items inside. Then the men hired a moving truck to move the items inside of the apartment. John took the movers to lunch with the moving truck parked outside the restaurant where all, where all this, these insured contents were stored inside the truck. During lunch, the truck and all those contents are stolen. Oh. So John had, of course, arranged someone to steal the truck. Right. He wasn't just taking them out for lunch. (laughs) (laughs) What you classically do with your moving people. (laughs) Just park the truck right out front. And they'll take you to lunch. (laughs) Gene and John were awarded over $100,000 by the insurance company. Jesus. And now they had the money to start their next business. 
I think the thing is, if you get away with one scam, you think you get emboldened, yeah. you know? And they, these are just bigger and bigger scams. Yeah. In 1985, John Hawkins and Gene Hansen opened up a very 80s sweatsuit store in Lexington, Kentucky called Just Sweats. <laughs> <laughs> what did they sell? Just Sweats. <laughs> Wait, in Lexington, Kentucky? Well, they opened it up there because that's where Missy, the girlfriend of John, oh. that's where her hometown was. Okay. And I think she had like a 10% stake in the company. Like she gave them some money or something when they first... Honestly, I feel like I've been to the store. I know it probably didn't exist elsewhere, but I feel like I went to a store called Just Sweats. Well, they had 22 stores. Oh, they did? <laughs> So this one took off a little. Yes, this was a success. Um, but I've like, it's look, I was trying desperately to, I found a couple of ads for this and it's just all very like 80s, multi-hued sweats sets. Right. Like sweat, big sweatshirts with sweatpants. You get like, you know, a matching teal sweatpant and sweat sweatshirt and you wear it together with your white Reeboks. Right. It's that kind of store. Yeah. Now, John's mother, Jackie, was under the impression that her son had worked so hard at his bartending gigs, he had saved all this money to open up. Just Sweats. Just Sweats. His dream come true. His dream come true. Just Sweats was a big success, and the company expanded to 22 stores in Kentucky and Ohio. Gene ran the business side of the company while John was the creative side, becoming the face of the company, starring in many of their TV commercials, which I tried to hunt down, Desi. I'm sure. Desperately. But he was in the commercials, you know, flexing and wearing like a salmon-colored tank top. Right. That kind of commercial. Both were living in Columbus, Ohio at this time. John Hawkins and his roommate, Eric DeSando, again, were right back on the nightlife scene this time in Columbus. And although John Hawkins remained in a relationship with Missy Hughes, that didn't stop him from chasing girls all over town. They eventually broke up in 1987. Mm. In 1986, Gene Hansen took out a $450,000 life insurance policy from Farmers Insurance and named his partner, John Hawkins, as the beneficiary. Hmm. In 1987, he purchased another life insurance policy worth $1 million. He also took out a $50,000 insurance policy on his Porsche. He updated his will, and John Hawkins was named as the sole beneficiary. The will also stipulated that he be cremated immediately after his death, which is exactly what happened when the body of Gene Hansen was found in Dr. Richard Boggs' office of 1988, in April 1988. Now, wait a minute. I'm getting suspicious. (laughs) Now, it wasn't unusual to his friends and family that the 46-year-old man had drafted a will considering he had an ongoing heart condition. And by December of 1987, Gene Hansen was looking a little rough. Some people around him suspected he had AIDS. By January of 1988, Gene had just abandoned Just Sweats. He stopped ordering merchandise, and he ended up emptying the company's bank accounts, which totaled $1.8 million. The accountant for Just Sweats discovered that none of the company's taxes had been paid. 
John Hawkins tracked down Gene in Los Angeles and was able to recover some of the money that had been taken. When he arrived back in Ohio, he told Just Sweat's employees that Gene had wanted out of the business and that he had signed over the shares to him. So now John owns this company. And <laughs> it was my cat. And after a f- and a few months later, Gene was reported dead. Hmm. John Hawkins then filed his claim for the $1 million in life insurance money that Gene had taken out. Although the cause of Gene Hansen's death was determined by the coroner as natural causes and the police had closed the case, the two patrol officers who had arrived on the scene that morning, they had some suspicions from the get-go. For one, the EKG test was time-stamped at midnight, but the doctor had claimed that he had performed it at 3 a, 5 a.m. Oh. They also had been suspicious of Boggs's claim that he was unable to reach a 911 operator. Right. Immediately what you said in the beginning. Yeah. How are you not able to get a hold? Yeah. In June of 1988, a claims officer at Farmers Insurance noticed that the thumbprint of the deceased did not match the thumbprint of Gene Hansen in his DMV records. She called the detective who had worked the case and requested a copy of Gene Hansen's driver's license. When the photograph of the body at the morgue was compared with Gene's driver's license, they realized that this was not the same man. <gasps> Gene Hansen did not die in that office. <laughs> it was someone else. Who? Well, <laughs> we're going to get there. By July of 1988, farmers had already paid out $1 million to John Hawkins, and he cashed that check immediately. Of course. John Hawkins then emptied the bank accounts of, at Just Sweats and ran. He left his car at the Columbus airport and set off on a months-long tour of the country, staying at various friends' houses, often telling them that he was in trouble and that the trouble was that the FBI was looking for him because he had been laundering his father's drug money through Just Sweats. <laughs> that's the story that's he gave. The, that's, that's the, the good story. Right. <laughs> okay. That's the believable one that his friends were like, all right. Okay. I can Just accept. Sweats. <laughs> During this time, he crashed at his mom's place in Vegas a few times. She, of course, thought her son had done nothing wrong and that these people were just out to get her John. Right. Of course. They're just out to get my boy. By the end of 1988, John had a fake passport, and by 1989, he had flown to Amsterdam. He quickly made a host of friends and was back on the party scene. He always had a gaggle of girls around him. In September, he bought a catamaran and sailed to England. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) Oh, he ended up naming it Carpe Diem after he saw Dead Poets Society. Jesus Christ. He probably thought that was so genius. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was like, I'm seizing the day. I'm on the lamb. (laughs) He settled in England for the winter. He was able to procure a European passport by assuming the identity of a dead child. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) He he doesn't need it anymore. (laughs) He would end up traveling throughout Europe all the way to Spain. In 1989, John Hawkins was featured on Unsolved Mysteries. And in 1990, he was featured on America's Most Wanted. And though thousands of tips poured in, none of them led anywhere. 
<laughs> Just sweats. <laughs> Honestly, I kind of wish that store still existed because I'm always looking for cute sweatpants. But you know that these were the kind where they had elastic on the ankle and the waist. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't like those kinds. Where it kind of cuts into you. It was like it was like hammer pants, kind of, <laughs> not that baggy, but like just like the elastic on the ankles. I just thought that like bunchy elastic it's on not the ankles. <laughs> I like it to be smoother sweats. Yeah. I think. I don't want pockets and bulky. Yeah, they make more tailored stuff now. Yeah. You need it's like a little tailored. more flattering. Yes. Yes. Meanwhile, the non-dead Gene Hansen had moved to Palm Beach, Florida. Ooh. His dream. Yes. And at this time, he was going by the name Wolfgang von Snowden. <laughs> what? <laughs> Look, he didn't want to stand out. (laughs) He's incognito. (laughs) Have you heard of it? He was living in a hotel and posing as a businessman from Hamburg, Germany, even though he spoke no German and didn't even put on an accent. Right. He wasn't even like Wolfgang. No. (laughs) He just said Wolfgang. (laughs) He he wasn't even trying to appear German. In January of 1988, this is four months before... This body is discovered. Right. He's already in Miami after abandoning Just Sweats. He went shopping for real estate and ended up going to dinner with a realtor named Malcolm Briggs. At dinner, the restaurateur who knew Malcolm leaned over to him in the middle of their dinner and said, this man's not from Germany. He's from the deep south. (laughs) (laughs) Did Malcolm not know? (laughs) No, but he was like, well, there's a lot of weird people in Miami. Yeah. He just brushed it off. He liked him. He was charming yeah. enough. Yeah. But <laughs> I like that hilarious. not only was he not trying to have a German accent, he still had his flaming Southern accent. Right. right. Great job. But Malcolm happily took the cash payment from Gene Hansen for the six months rent of a luxury penthouse. Mm. Malcolm even pointed Gene in the direction of some male escorts. Gene was living the life he'd always dreamed of in South Florida, surrounded by young, gorgeous, tan men. According to Malcolm, quote, there were muscle boys running up to his penthouse almost every night. Back in Los Angeles, after combing through missing persons records, investigators at the California Department of Insurance Fraud figured out the identity of the dead man in Dr. Richard Boggs's office. It was a 32-year-old man named Ellis Green. Ellis grew up in Ohio and lived a life as a closeted gay man, even marrying a woman for a few years, before he came out and moved to Los Angeles in 1985. He had frequented gay bars in L.A. for years before that fateful night in April of 1988, when he met Dr. Richard Boggs and Gene Hansen. Ellis was last seen drunk outside of the Bullet Club in North Hollywood. He was then lured to Dr. Boggs's office in Glendale, where he was subdued with a stun gun before being suffocated to death. <gasps> Ellis Green was not the first person that Dr. Boggs tried to lure into his office and kill. Just a week prior to the murder, a police report had been filed by a man named Barry Pomeroy, alleging that Dr. Boggs had tried to kill him with a stun gun in his office. <gasps> Barry had met Dr. Boggs at a bar called The Spike in WeHo. Boggs introduced himself there as Peter Richards. 
They left the bar together and they went to a diner and they had food. Then they drove to Glendale where they looked at some buildings. Boggs told Barry <laughs> that he had to make a phone call at his office and they went over there together and Barry looked on the walls, saw the diplomas and they all said Richard Boggs oh. and not the name that he gave him. Right. Boggs said, oh, that's my partner. Boggs then drove Barry home and a week later he asked Barry out again. While out on their date, Boggs said that he had to stop by the office again. And when they got there, he offered Barry a free EKG test. <laughs> Barry said, okay. Boggs approached Barry with his arms outstretched as if to embrace him. That's when he hit him with the stun gun to the neck. But Barry was able to fight back and knock the stun gun out of the doctor's hands. Boggs started apologizing for trying to kill him. I <laughs> mean, you... You gotta. <laughs> what else do you do in that situation? Sorry, my bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just so insane. He told Barry that he would seek help. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not funny, but Jesus Christ. Box then drove Barry home. A week later, he went to the police. By that time, he had put two and two together that his name was Dr. Boggs. And not Peter Richards. He's right. like, yeah, that guy was definitely lying about his name, too. But a few days after filing the report, Barry Pomeroy was contacted by the detective, a man named Detective Peterson, and he was urging him to let it go. Oh. Detective Peterson said, look, I've known Richard for years, and he's an outstanding member of the community. Yeah. First of all, that's not true. He wasn't an outstanding right. member of the community. This guy was being sued by everyone in town. Is this cop real? Yes, this cop is real. Okay. Desi. I thought maybe it was like Gene with a, a different voice and a mustache. <laughs> Hello, this is Detective Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Everyone's such a liar and scammer. It's <laughs> from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Desi. This is George Peterson. <laughs> yes, hello. <laughs> Sloan Peterson's father. <laughs> so, this dick detective, fucker, Peterson, if you're still alive today, fuck you. He was like, just let it go. I'm, right. friends, with, I'm friends with this doctor. Hmm. The district attorney also dismissed Barry's claims, believing that this was just two gay men having some kind of spat. Ugh, yeah, that's very Jeffrey Dahmer. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Detective Peterson believed that the stun gun must have just been used in some deviant sex act between gay men. Oh. In May of 1988, just one month after the murder, Gene Hansen paid Dr. Jeffrey Tardiff in cash for plastic surgery to make himself look younger, but also to change his appearance. Hmm. At the doctor's office, Gene filled out several forms. Some of them he listed his name as Wolfgang von Snowden, but some of them he wrote down Wolfgang von, von Schnowden. Stompanato. Wolfgang von Schnowden. What the hell, dude? He couldn't, he couldn't even get his name right on all four of the Shh. forms. Snowden? What was it again? I forgot. <laughs> that's so funny. Why well, can't you just look at them? Even, even if you Oh, that's the it. German spelling. 
<laughs> Sometimes I go back and forth. <laughs> he would do this a lot. He was checking into hotels, and sometimes it was Von Snowden, and sometimes it was How Von Snowden. Do not get that simple detail straight. What's insane is that this was on the same in the same doctor's office visit. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine seeing that? Like, what would you think? Yeah, Why is this he's Snowden? Got cash. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who uh, cares? What happens? <laughs> While recovering in his Palm Beach penthouse after the surgery, Gene had his boyfriend buy them a new station wagon. The license plate read Body Rub. (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) This is his dream life. (laughs) He just does not give a fuck about staying (laughs) conspicuous. Yeah. Also, like, seriously, a station wagon? (laughs) You don't get, like, a Maserati with a body rub tag? A station wagon? A wood-paneled, very practical station wagon. (laughs) But we're still fun. Body rub. Like, there's not even, like, a fun pun. It's just body rub. (laughs) Like, why? (laughs) They drove to Key West together, and he told his realtor friend Malcolm Briggs that he was looking to buy a guest house there. He ended up renting a place, and he signed the lease using the name Ellis Green, which was the same name of the man who had just been murdered. He also opened a bank account under that name. A few months later, he went on vacation in St. Petersburg, Florida, where he checked into a hotel under the name Wolfgang von Schnoden. Gene put it... <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't differentiate, Desi, because sometimes it's Von Snowden, but this house in St. Petersburg, he puts the down payment under Von Snowden. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he put a down payment on a house there. The people at Farmers Insurance were getting pissed off that they hadn't gotten their money back yet from John Hawkins, and that neither him nor Gene Hansen had, hadn't been located. They ended up hiring a private detective who, when rifling through the trash bins at John's place in Ohio, found phone bills with calls to a Miami number. The number was traced to Gene Hansen's penthouse. When they got a copy of the lease agreement, they saw that the lessee, Wolfgang von Snowden, had listed Dr. Boggs as a reference. Ugh, what an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) An APB was issued at U.S. Customs. In late December, Gene Hansen flew, <laughs> flew to Acapulco. Because <laughs> it's not it's not eighties enough until you go to Acapulco. You gotta hit the bingo. <laughs> he was shopping for new property, specifically bathhouses and nightclubs, but he had signed a lease on a house for a year also. He had planned on going back to St. Petersburg, Florida, to complete the sale of the home that he was buying there. In January of 1989, customs agents at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport in Texas discovered $14,000 in undeclared cash in Gene Hansen's bag. They also discovered several identifications under different names. He was also carrying around with him headshots belonging to John Hawkins. Just for fun, I guess. (laughs) And he was in possession of Ellis Green's driver's license. He was also carrying a book called How to Change Your Identity. (laughs) (laughs) But you got to read that and memorize it and throw it away. (laughs) 
He got to burn that book. <laughs> Why was he carrying that? He already changed his identity. <laughs> Do you still need it? <laughs> he was arrested. And a week later, Dr. Richard Boggs was arrested too. Gene Hansen, Richard Boggs, and John Hawkins were all charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder for financial gain, grand theft, and insurance fraud. Now, John Hawkins was charged for these things, even though he's still at large at this point. The trial for Dr. Richard Boggs began in May of 1990. He was found guilty of first-degree murder. Nearing the end of his trial, the defense, his defense attorney admitted that his client was guilty of insurance fraud, but not murder, suggesting that Ellis Green was already dead and that you couldn't prove how he died because he was cremated so quickly after police arrived on the scene initially. The prosecution argued that he was suffocated to death in Boggs' office, while a doctor for the defense testified that Ellis Green died from alcohol and poppers. Oh, I don't know how they determined that. Yeah. How would you have any determination? All they knew was that he had alcohol in his system. Like it was determined, but they were trying to claim like this. They're like, he's gay and he had poppers too. Yeah. (laughs) They were like, like, there was no evidence that he had any poppers in his system. Also, they were trying to kill someone. Yeah. It it didn't just, oh, we got lucky. He happened to die. (laughs) Right. But Dr. Boggs was found guilty. And during sentencing, Boggs claimed that he was coerced by Gene Hansen into carrying out the insurance scam. He said that Gene Hansen threatened to out him for being gay, but he was sentenced to life in prison. Okay. Gene Hansen's trial wouldn't begin for several years, but John Hawkins, where the fuck is this guy? Glendale detective John Perkins called a lawyer in L.A. who was known for having partied with John Hawkins. After threatening to call the bar if this guy was withholding any information about a fugitive, the lawyer finally gave up the name of who he said was a heavy hitter in Hollywood who would possibly have some information about John's whereabouts. Perkins got in touch with the guy who, after several acrimonious phone calls, gave up some information about John Hawkins that would help locate him. This is... A direct quote of the conversation from Vanity Fair that they printed. He's got, he's got vitiligo, he told Perkins. Vita what? Perkins asked. Vitiligo. It's a skin pigmentation disease, said the movie mogul. Except it's only on his dick. Wait, what? <laughs> this is sounding very familiar. <laughs> They're saying that this guy, John Hawkins... They didn't have any fingerprints on this guy. They didn't have dental records. They just knew his name. They didn't know if he had changed his face. They needed some identification for this guy. That's what Michael Jackson had. Well, he had it all over. No, but the specifically on the penis was like in the first. But so does John Hawkins. That's crazy. He has vitiligo only on his dick. Wow. Except it's only on his dick. I had no fingerprints, no dental records, said Perkins. Here's a guy who's changing his name, changing his looks, but you can't get rid of vitiligo. (laughs) On your dick. (laughs) Especially on your dick, you can't get rid of it. But then you also can't really see it. Right. But people who knew to be able to identify him. John Perkins told Vanity Fair, quote, I called it the Palomino dick. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, John. He's, He's very proud of that. (laughs) <laughs> he wanted Vanity Fair to know. 
<laughs> Until I talked to several girls who said that Hawkins referred to it as spot. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking for spot. Whether was it like a big dick? I'm just curious. <laughs> Did they say anything else about There's it? There's no other mention about the dick other than that it had vitiligo. Okay. Now the dick was important. Because like I said, up until this point, no one had any fingerprints or dental records for Hawkins. So just it, it's a dick. Fin- if they needed to confirm it was him, they could look at the dick. Uh, this was his one identifying feature, especially if he had changed his face. Like I said before, they right. had suspected some people were like, no, he would never change his face. He's so vain. Yeah. He actually did get some lip injections. And he got a chin imp- chin implant. Okay. But he didn't, like, do anything serious. Yeah. Because he was really vain. Uh, in July of 1991, the episode of Oprah that featured John Hawkins aired in Amsterdam. One of John Hawkins' ex-girlfriends was watching that day, and she was like, holy shit, that's Brad. <laughs> Brad? <laughs> Had to go with Brad. He was going by Brad now in Europe. <laughs> The ex-girlfriend called the Oprah show in Chicago and said that John was somewhere in the Mediterranean sailing on a boat. In August, John Hawkins was finally apprehended in Sardinia. John was screaming, you have the wrong guy. You have the wrong guy. It's not me. Now, the Italian police had actually recently arrested someone who was the wrong guy thinking it was John Hawkins, so they needed to make sure. They called Interpol, where they learned about John's very distinct-looking penis. Oh, my God. Police told John to drop his pants, and when he did, they knew they had the right guy. Spot. (laughs) (laughs) Palomino. John was booked into one of Italy's most notorious prisons, which he tried to escape from, but was caught. He did like that bed sheets thing, where he ties oh, all the bed sheets together and climbs out the window. Yeah, <laughs> which he had filed with like a nail file, the bars. Whoa, you know, yeah, something like that. He was caught in 1992. John was extradited to Los Angeles to await trial. In 1995, Gene Hansen went to trial where he claimed that he was under the impression that Dr. Boggs was just going to use a cadaver in the scheme. Oh. He swears that he didn't think anyone was going to be murdered. He was found guilty of murder and insurance fraud and sentenced to life without parole. John Hawkins is also tried that year and found guilty, but he's only sentenced to 25 to life, and he was released in March of 2012. Oh. He's out. Whoa. And he's not that old because he was like 27 when he was arrested. Whoa. And I actually looked this guy up and he sold a book that you can buy on Amazon called like the prison fitness, prison workout. It's like some, there's a (laughs) penitentiary fitness. It's some like prison workout. John Hawkins wrote it. Yes. Why did he get less? Because he, he wasn't, wasn't part there. of the murder? Yeah, he wasn't part of the was actual Gene murder. Was Gene there? Yeah, Gene and Dr. Boggs were in the office when that guy died. Oh, I didn't know Gene was there. Yeah, he was okay. there. They actually, so he left before the cops came or something. Yeah, he actually had... They had found like a record from a hotel in Glendale that someone named Wolfgang von Snowden had <laughs> checked in. Jesus. <laughs> he was writing that name all over town. Okay. And then he w- immediately went back to Florida. 
So John was a part of the whole process, but he just because he wasn't there, he got less. Yeah, I think so. And the other two are still alive? Uh, Dr. Boggs died in 2003 of a heart attack. And Gene is still alive, I think. Oh. Yeah, he's like in his 60s now, I guess. Maybe he's older. But John is out. He did like a, he was on one of those like um, not investigation discovery, but I think one of the oxygen ones about his case. Right. Like they interviewed him and he was like, I was an idiot. Blah, 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 blah. That's he's so crazy. He's learned a lot, does he? I bet. I mean, look, we were just talking about dumb things you do in your 20s. This yes. takes the cake. Yeah. Yeah. This I mean, really takes the cake. That's such a wild scheme. Isn't that crazy? Yes. Can you believe like the layers to this story? No, this is such a Vanity Fair story. Oh my God. I probably read it, but just completely forgot about it because I was obsessed with Vanity Fair crime writing. That's like one of my first things I was into. They have such good crime stories. They're just like off the beaten path, some of them. Yeah. And then they'll also have, which I love is the ones in the world of like the wealthy, like the Dominic Don type pieces. Yeah. That's so crazy. I'm laughing my ass off at Just Sweat. Like, I will never <laughs> Just Sweat. I just, I need to see pictures of, of them all immediately. Yeah, Especially incredible. Jean. Like, I'm obsessed with Jean. Dude, Jean has a blonde, skinny mustache. Jean just like, I know that this is not like accurate, but for some reason I just picture him in Miami like the birdcage. <laughs> Like living his best life. Of course. <laughs> like, like having that whole like kimono robes. And like, I mean, Jean, you could have had this. You didn't have to kill someone. Seriously. Why do you have to do that? They went next. They had to go there. They so they, to- but they split this money three ways, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had the million dollar and then they had another one that was like 500,000. I mean, well, what's wild is it doesn't seem like that much, that much money. I mean, John had taken all of the like he had cashed all that money right himself but he did give some of it to i think he gave like 85 grand to Dr. Boggs and then he gave some like some of it to Gene Hansen but he got the majority of it i think he did i mean he 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 like it worked out for him the best. Uh, I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> like, Cuz how did yeah, that's crazy. Right. Like Oh yeah, and then so Gene had the two life insurance policies uh, on his life. Now, the $450,000 life insurance policy that Gene had taken out on himself, the only reason John didn't get that money is because they accidentally sent it to the wrong address. Oh. And by then, John was already on the lam. So they didn't... He was unable to cash it. He never cashed that check, so they stopped the But check. how was Gene living it up in Miami? Because John had bought him out of Just Sweats. Oh, he had the Just Sweats money. Yeah. Got it. Like, remember, he stole that yes. money from Just Sweats, and then John was like, hey. I just feel like Gene and Richard were stupid in this deal, that they let um, John get away with all the million dollars. I mean, I think everyone was really seduced by John. So he really, he did the long con. <laughs> <laughs> everyone loved John Hawkins. They didn't want to, like, you know, believe anything bad about him. He probably was like, I'll take care of both of you. Yeah. And then they couldn't turn him in because they would turn themselves in. Right. Interesting. Isn't that a wild story? Yes. I don't even know what to call this episode. I love that story. (laughs) Anything that's set in the 80s, I love. (laughs) Especially with those details. Dude. 
They're so crazy. I know. What did I... Oh, I was like thinking uh, when I did the... um, Preppy murder. It had a lot of those eighties details. Like too. you can't believe you can't believe some of the stuff. You can't believe anything bad happened in those times where everything seemed so stupid. Right. <laughs> like just like you have to tell this awful story and then you're like, and then they went to just yogurt. <laughs> it's just like what? So insane. Yeah. Just sweats. I'm like obsessed with all of these characters. Yeah. I just can't believe John really got away with it all, pretty much. I know. And he's like still relatively young now. He's like 50. Yeah. Just unbelievable. Like he's not like an old man. Those two guys are such idiots. I know. Um, Cool. I'm looking forward to pictures. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.